the other day on here, I was talking about uh, how whatever it is someone's currently feeling or experiencing or obsessing over feels to them like it's the most important thing in the world. It brings to mind uh, Terrence McKenna, the, the Terrence McKenna quote that I never shut up about, but anxiety is a form of audacity. Or no, excuse me, he said, audacity, <laughs> uh, anxiety is a form of hubris, is the McKenna quote. Anxiety is a form of hubris, and it is. And what I'm talking about, like like when I say whatever it is you're currently feeling seems like the most important thing in the world, and like when, when you see somebody else worrying about that, it's very easy to be kind of like, oh, look at this. Look at this. You know, they seem, it seems silly. Like, even if you understand, it still seems silly. Like, when someone's freaking out about something and you know how unimportant it is, you know how little this matters. And not, not even in a nihilistic way, like, nothing matters. Nothing, nothing even matters. You know, not, not even like that. Just simply, you can see that it just, it's, it's not something this person needs to worry or think about. And even if you understand that, you just know that. But there is this audacity to, to that, and that person is usually in a state of anxiety. Because when you're not anxious, things feel unimportant, but in a good way. Things when you're not going when you're not having a spell of anxiety, when you're when you're living somewhat freely you actually don't care. I mean, that's part of it. Like, people always say, like, oh, when you're happy, you just don't care. Happy people, they, they just don't care. But there's truth to that. And that's kind of why people who are having a good time do things more impulsively, sometimes in a bad way, like they do something they shouldn't be doing because it feels good in the moment. But people also do that on a more innocent level when they're feeling good when they're happy, when they're having a good time, they're just more likely to be like, to run into somebody they know, and that person's like, hey, you want to go uh, have a drink? And they'll say, yeah. You know what? Yeah. Like, whereas normally, like, someone invites you to something, and you're like, eh, I don't know, and then you dread going. You're thinking about making up an excuse so you don't have to go. You're, you're thinking about not going. And then, uh, you know, all that comes from a, a place of, like, I don't know, like either you're tired or you're you're just feeling like guarded. But when you're feeling the opposite, when you're not feeling cagey, when, when you feel pretty free, you're way more likely to be like, yeah, I'll go to the casino with you. I mean, there was one morning years ago where a friend of mine called me pretty early in the morning, not like 7 a.m., but I feel like it was 9 or 10 a.m. And she was like, I'm going to the casino. I'm on my, I'm on my way to the casino right now. Do you want to go? I'll pick you up. And I go, I've never been. I was like, yes. And, you know, just this thing was totally unplanned, spontaneous. It, I just ended up at the casino and I won a bunch of money. Not a bunch, but I won like $90. I mean, that's a bunch of money. If you've never gambled before, if you've, ne if, you know, you want to talk about relativity, you know, it's like $90 is a lot of money to just suddenly get for no reason because you pushed a button. 
but I think part of that, you know, it was just the, the spontaneity of it that I was, I woke up, I think I was like drinking coffee in my kitchen. It's probably nice out. I was drinking coffee in my kitchen, hanging out. And, uh, someone just randomly was like, you want to go to the casino? I'm on my way. I'll pick you up. Like, you don't even have to do anything. I don't even have to drive. You'll just take me to this place I've never been that's bizarre. And I'm going to get $90 by pushing a button. But that's what it is. Like, I mean, people do associate like a degree of spontaneity with happiness or just feeling okay, feeling free. And uh, like I was saying, though, like when you're not feeling great in general, like when you just have a negative disp- disposition, you're way more likely to be like, casino? You say casino? I don't want to go. You're more likely to turn it down or just dread it or something. You're more likely to to not want to do it. And that's bad in the sense that when you're feeling good, sometimes you'd be like, yeah, I'll have another drink. Yeah, I'll, I'll try that drug. I'll go to that place I shouldn't go. You know, it's much easier to do that. But like I was saying, you know, there's a much more innocent, it's, it's an entire spectrum where you do impulsive things that are also fun and, and good. And part of what makes life fun is impulsivity because it's not planned. When things are planned, you have expectations. Like even if you're planning on going to a baseball game, it's like you have some sort of expectation about what that experience is going to be. And you're thinking about it ahead of time. You're planning for it. Whereas like when you go to the casino and it's totally unplanned, you're just like, oh, I'm going to experience this today. I'm just along for the ride. This is going to be new. And, uh, you know, so it's, I don't know. I I don't remember what I was getting at. I guess, you know, I was talking about like, like things feeling like the most important thing in the world to you when you're feeling them and not caring, being kind of the antidote for that. It's something you shouldn't care about life. Like I care about doing the right thing. I care about being honest and ethical, all of those things that you should be. I care about those things. But sometimes like when you're in a moment where you, where it's like something is really bothering you, it can be a, a major gift to just stop caring or to, to even remember what that feeling is because you're so stuck in, in this thing you're obsessing over, this thing that you're ruminating on. That's what I was talking about the other day is rumination. And it, it's audacious. It's hubristic. Because you can't just feel that the thing you're feeling, you can't just think that the thing you're feeling is the most important thing. When you're feeling that way, you also kind of expect other people to feel that way. Like when some someone you know, like a friend or anybody comes to you with a problem they're explaining this problem and you're and in your mind you're thinking this would be so easy to not care about this is what you're telling me this would be so easy don't you understand like like this would be really easy to not care about to not care about this but what they're saying to you when they come to you with their problem is they're th- they're saying care about this care about this please care about this you know, they they're trying to convince you to care about it And that's kind of, that's part of it is it's, it's like whenever someone has a delusion, 
it's not even the delusion itself that causes the problem. It's them trying to convince other people of it who don't believe it, who don't see it. But they really want to. Like when someone's delusional, what causes problems is they're trying to get other people to believe, not even believe them. They're often trying to convince the other person that delusion is real. Oh, so you think this. No big deal. I don't have to care about that. Oh, so you think morning is night and night is morning. Doesn't affect me at all. But if you try to tell me that morning is night and night is morning, that's when the problem comes up. That's where problems with delusional people come up is not being able to just settle on your differences, on your different delusions. It's thinking that other person needs to care or understand or see it too. Will you please care about this? Um, and it's not just delusions, it's anything. <laughs> It's not even just delusions. It's anything that, that somebody tries to convince you of. I mean, that's politics. You should care about this and you should see it this way. And that should make you do this. The other person's like, everything you said is, is backwards. Everything you said is the reverse of reality. Or I, I just simply don't care. And that's often the worst thing in politics of all is when someone thinks something, their pre, some political preoccupation is the most important thing in the world. And you say, oh, I don't care. Hmm. No opinion. That's almost worse than disagreeing because you're completely disengaging from this thing that they think is important. And people will condemn you over that. Like if somebody thinks a certain pet issue is extremely important and you don't disagree, you just truly don't care, they will condemn you. They will think you're an awful person for that. They'll think your moral compass is just bent out of shape. They'd prefer it in many ways if you just said, I believe the opposite of you, you fucking idiot. They'd almost prefer it if you, because then they could respond and say, oh yeah, well this, you're delusional and you're wrong. I'm right because of this. Have you heard of this? You ever heard a little thing called this? My latest piece of evidence that I call this? You know, that's what a lot of it is. And, but that's what people are seeking. They're seeking that kind of engagement, even with their enemy. But when your beliefs don't line up with that person's enemy, or you're just indifferent or ambivalent, or you don't care, in many ways that makes people more upset. How could you not care about this? How could you not care about this? You know, that, that's where people go with it. And, uh, I think that's anxiety too. I mean, I know it is. You know, McKenna's saying anxiety is a form of hubris. 
And the reason he said that is because of the way that someone in an anxious state, someone experiencing anxiety over somebody kind of projects that onto you and your reality and might be upset if you don't understand it or, or don't feel the same way they feel. That's exactly what politics is. And politics is anxiety. Political opinions are anxiety manifesting into you know someone's identity. Like what else is what else is it? I mean that's exactly what it is. Like if you watch any kind of political commentary, and I do watch a little bit, a lot of it's like, here's what we're anxious about. This. You heard of this? Did you hear about this? Oh listen to this. That's what a lot of political commentary is. It's just here's a bunch of stuff that we're anxious about and we want you to be anxious about. And we want to convince you to feel the same way we do. We want you to experience the same form of anxiety you, we're feeling because we think it's that important. But anyway, uh, it's weird when you reach a point, though, like where your only anxieties, not those are my only anxieties, but um, where some of your main anxieties are other people's anxieties, but not in the way that I'm referring to here, where like they've convinced you to see things the way they see, but just, you know, I have a friend who's been going through these extreme states of anxiety that are really disruptive, and I'm not feeling it at all, and I listen, but I just kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because I used to, I used to be more focused on it, but now when I hear about it, I'm just like, okay, oh, and and it's not me being a bad friend or you know, it's it's not me being uncaring. It's just like I, I'm just kind of at a loss for words at this point, and I, I can kind of see the bigger picture that that oh that doesn't matter, but to them it does matter. You know, I was talking about this this morning with somebody, and I, I just mentioned, you know, I was talking about work, I was at work talking to my boss, and I just said, uh, you know, the thing of, about these employees is, you know, whatever they're feeling right now is the most important thing in the world to them. And he was like, well, yeah, it's the same as, uh, it's the same idea as, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Just that relativity thing. And that's true. Uh, and it's important to remember that. Like, I think, I think to some degree, like, you know, like I had a good life, like growing up, my childhood was great. I look back and I'm like, what a great time that was. But I also remember being freaked out and not because my parents or anybody tried to freak me out. I was just kind of freaked out by life. Like I look back at elementary school and I'm just like, I remember, I remember being freaked out by that. And why? Like a bunch of, it just, things seemed really, like I was happy and I had a lot of fun and I had friends and interests. Like I had everything you could possibly want from a childhood, but I still remember thinking, what about this? What about this? Oh, what's, what's that? What's that? What's going to happen if this happens? What's going to happen to that? What's going to happen there? 
you know, I, I was in that state of mind all the time. And I, I think about just being kind of freaked out and, and thinking, I don't know, just, just uh, not even worrying, just being freaked out. So that's, I think that's the clinical term for it. And uh, anyway, the point being like, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Nothing really that bad ever happened to me. Like I had troubles in various ways. I had certainly bad things happen, but compared to other people's lives, nothing that horrible ever happened. And uh, that said, though, like I think that like talking about being freaked out, I think part of that, though, was like kind of vicariously feeling or experiencing, you know, these other horrible things that you hear about, like not even through another person I knew, but just the idea of it. Like, yeah, like something that might be trivial to somebody else may have upset me when I was a kid because my life was good or, you know, let fewer bad things happen to me. Uh, but uh, at the same time, like I was thinking about far worse things all the time. I was thinking about far worse scenarios and situations constantly. So I kind of understood I think I had some kind of perspective on how bad and low things can get. I didn't have to experience them to know that. Like I would say even at this point in my life, you know, I've had bad things happen to me up to this point. Uh, you know, I've had some very difficult situations in the last few years, but I don't even really put them in the context of best or worst. I just, they just simply are what they are. And I would still say I've had a really easy life. I'd, I'd still say I've had a good, easy life, what we call a good and easy life. Especially since some of those difficult situations happen. Like in some way, those proved to me that it, it was even easier. So I think you can have a perspective on that. But that said, I mean, I've also been, you know, when I was younger, like I, you think about your first breakup. I look back at the, just the condition I was in. And I remember even my mom thought I was pathetic. I wasn't crying, but I was just in this, this deep fog and just miserable. It wasn't like a, I mean, I'm sure I cried a number of times, but like when this went on in the weeks after the breakup, you know, it wasn't like I was going around crying or sobbing or being a wimp about it. I was just truly, deeply unhappy. I remember just finding ways to kill time. And like trying to find little adventures. Like, oh, I'm going to go for a walk at this park. I'm going to drive way out. And just getting there and being like, fuck this. Oh, it's this. I still felt that way. And it seemed so important. And like, like I said, like people in my life, people who were sympathetic, like my best friend, I remember like initially like drinking beers and processing it and talking about it. And then, you know, a week later, two weeks later, I realized like, oh, he doesn't care anymore. He cares about me, but he doesn't care about my weird, you know, debriefing and analysis, like my weird post breakup debriefings. Like he does, he's sick of it. And this isn't that important to him. And he sees how silly it is. And I remember him trying to kind of get me out of the spell. 
and I understood what he was saying, but I was just like, yeah, but what about this? And in a way, I wanted other people to see things the way I saw them. Like I almost wanted people to say exactly what I was thinking. Or I wanted them to, to say exactly, I wanted them to feel exactly what I was feeling. Not feel that heartbreak, but I wanted them to think it was important. But I realized it wasn't to them. And they were just like, oh, I'm sick of this. I, I like hanging out with you and talking to you when you're your normal self, not this idiot. And then, of course, like over the years, I've gotten to see other people in that state. And it's not just the first breakup. Sometimes it's any breakup. Like a girl who works for me, you know, you know, she had met a guy on Tinder. They dated for about a month. He broke up with her. And, you know, she was really upset. She was, you know, crying one day, a couple days. She hasn't talked about it since. That was like a month ago. But still, it was, she was really upset. And she's young. You know, she's 21. And I, I was just thinking like, oh, this is this guy that you dated for a month. This is so unimportant. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. Like, you're making bad decisions or something. I just mean it in the sense that like, this is never going to matter to you again. And I can see that. You'll look back and see that. But right now, this feels like the biggest thing in the world. Oh, you got a text that the guy you met a month ago on a dating site doesn't want to date anymore. You know, it's like, I'm just like, oh, you know, I can see how, how little that matters overall. But that's what you're feeling then. Like, if that's what's ups upsetting you, you go, oh, okay. And then the second that someone like me looks at that person and says, I can... I can easily see how little this matters. I can easily see. It doesn't matter. You know, someone like me can say that, and then I turn around and I do it in my own way. Or I go through the exact same situation. Like, I remember I was kind of going on these, like, friendly dates with a girl four years ago. And uh, I just kind of ended up blowing her off. Like, I, I still talk to her sometimes and like her a lot. Uh, but I, uh, I just kind of stopped making plans with her. It was, I just had, I was just on a weird trip and I, uh, I know it upset her. And then like a while later, like months later, let's say two months later, three months later, I saw on uh, social media or that she was dating somebody and I was crushed. I was crushed. I was crushed. Like, oh no. Even though I, it's, it's a great thing. Like she was a little upset or something that, you know, I just kind of stopped trying to make plans. I didn't even, we weren't even ever dating officially or anything like that. We were just having a good time, you know, just doing things, going places. And, uh, I, I just, I didn't, there was, there wasn't even really anything to end at that point. It was just sort of like, oh, I got caught up with some other stuff. And it, and it was kind of, you know, I feel like it was meant to be that way too because it was like a few months later, a couple months later, my mom uh, died. So, you know, I was, I was focused on other things. I was focused on myself. I was focused on my mom. I didn't know she was going to die. But it all kind of makes sense in hindsight why I needed to free up time and not be making plans or doing anything with anybody. 
But it's funny to me that I remember at that exact time in my life, like looking at some of the other, like heartbreak being an example. Like I remember a friend around that time talking to me about not even heartbreak, but just like trying to meet girls and, you know, jealousy and this and that. Just the normal things that a person goes through when they're trying to find or sustain a romance. And just thinking, oh, it's nice to be past that. It's nice I don't have to worry about that anymore. And then I, I see this girl that I pretty much blew off. I did. This girl that I pretty much blew off, I, I did. Uh, and then I see that she's, a couple months later, she's moved on and is trying to date somebody. And just being like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, and just obsessing over it. Just obsessing over that for about a day. Didn't last long, but it was, there was about a day. And I was just kind of obsessed with it. And how shitty it was making me feel. And it seemed really important for that day. I spent a day... <laughs> I spent a day thinking that was the most important thing in the world. That that was worth spending all my time thinking about. Out of all the things I could think about, out of all the things I could feel... What I was feeling is that was important. Batty. 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 All right. He's been very barky. I don't know. I'm hearing like little noises for the last hour. But uh, Hey, Batman, come on. But anyway, uh, it's funny though. Like just when you think you're past that or that you think that you have this top-down view and you understand what matters, what doesn't, what makes sense. That's exactly when you forget that you're caring about all sorts of bullshit. I mean, when I started this new job, I was going to training in a city about a half hour away. And my friend was staying here and was just saying like, well, I would come home and I would just be filled with like some new anxiety about something else every day. That's how I am whenever something's new. A new job is definitely that way. Like the first day, well, my, my, and my friend who was staying here would always be like, this is crazy. You know, you're, you're just obsessing over this. You're totally preoccupied with this. This probably doesn't matter. You're, I'm delusional. Because, I mean, it would be all kinds of things. Like, I worried about the most insane things. Like, it's my first time working in a retail store. I'm so used to saying office. The, the people who were training me, neither of whom was even going to be my boss once I officially started. But the people who were training me, I exchanged phone numbers with them. And I, I sent them a message to give them my number. And I just said, hey, this is Eric from the Lacey office. Because I was going to be working in Lacey. And, of course, it's a store. And then I thought back like the rest of the night and into the, and like before I got to work the next day, I was like, oh my God, I used the word office instead of store. And uh, they're going to think I'm not, I'm, I don't belong here. They're going to think that I don't have the mindset to work in a store because I'm still uh, thinking about offices. Like think about how stupid that is. I actually thought that. I was worried that I used the word office in a text message to two people who didn't even hire me, weren't going to be my bosses. All they were doing was training me. 
And they were both really laid back, nice people. And I thought that like they were going to let my future boss know, not future boss, but like they were going to let the guy who hired me, who, who's my boss now, like I was like, oh, they're going to let him know that I use the word, the word office instead of store. I'm done. Think about, I mean, it's so stupid to even just tell that story. And it worried me for like 10 hours, including sleep. And I didn't lose any sleep. So it worried me for three hours of, of wake, wake time. Wake time. It worried me for too much time. But then the next day was something else. There was a day where I went home and checked my timesheet. And I had been clocked out an hour and a half early. And the timesheet said who did it. And it's a guy who's now my boss, but I hadn't met him yet. And uh, I was like, oh, he clocked me out for a reason. Uh, he He's watching the cameras at the store. And he saw that like for the last hour and a half, I wasn't really doing anything. It was Super Bowl Sunday. And the store was dead. So everybody who worked there and then me and the other people who were training, we just sat around for the last hour of the day and talked. There were no customers. There was nothing to do. So we just sat around and talked. But in my mind, because he clocked me out an hour early, I was like, oh, he was watching the security cameras. He saw that this new guy they hired in her training just sat around for an hour. And he thought I didn't deserve the hours. He thought I didn't deserve the time. I mean, that's not even legal. But uh, I was like, he thought I didn't deserve to get paid for that. And I was like, I was waiting for them to mention it. I was like, why did that guy clock me out? And then about a week later, I'd met that, by that time I had met that guy. I love him. He's the man. I love this guy. And one day like, I see that he's like, he's approving the timesheets. And I said, Oh, by the way, like I noticed that I, I got clocked out an hour early and he's like, Oh, I clocked you out. He's like, Oh, there, there's another Eric working for us. And I thought it was you. And I was like, why is he clocked in? He's not even here today. So I clocked, you know, I, I thought, it, I thought you were him. And I, so I clocked you out and he's like, I'll fix it right now. Think about how delusional I was. Think about the fact that, you know, I spent a night, being incredibly anxious about this. Like I created a whole story and we do this all the time. We do it with everything. But I created this whole story in my head that this, my future boss was going to be a maniac and that he's just sitting there watching the time clocks and he's like, oh, and, and, and not only watching the time clocks, but watching the store security camera to see if I'm training or working and that and the, he's analyzing me and thinking I'm, I'm going to clock him out because he's not working. I created that in my head and I, I wasn't convinced that that's what actually happened, but that was the story that I created for my anxiety. That was my story. And I, and I was, I talked about it for probably a half hour straight when I got home. I thought about it for more. And it was all in my head. And it, it felt like the most important thing that night. 
I mean, people do it, like I said, it, for me, it's when anything's new. It definitely happens when you're dating somebody you've just met. Like you send a text message and you're like, oh God, she's going to take it this way. Oh my God. That it. It's like, it, it's the same exact thing as me saying office instead of store and thinking anybody even cared. At most, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, he meant store. Yeah, he's a guy who's worked in offices. He meant store. Same thing with dating. Like, you send a text message, you're like, oh, I said this. I said this. I said that. Oh, God. And you know what? That That is transmitted, though. Like, you transmit that when you're courting somebody. Courting somebody. You transmit that anxiety. Like, I feel like it, when you do, um, well, no, it, you, you definitely transmit it. Like, not when you just make a mistake or you say something silly on accident. You transmit it when you try to overcorrect. Like, if you send a girl a text message and you misspell, not, not, not misspell, spelling is important. Spelling is important. Spelling is the most important thing in the world. Uh, but no, when you send a message and, and you like are like, fuck, I, I didn't mean that. I should have meant this. Oh, she's going to think this. She's sitting there. She's going to get this and she's going to think this. When that's what goes through your mind, you try to overcorrect it by like following up. That's when the anxiety gets transmitted. That's when you try to overcorrect or overcompensate or like fix it. That's when the anxiety gets sent through. And they sense it and they don't like it. A girl doesn't like that. But, uh, what was I going to say? Um, I mean, you do that on a first date, you kind of do that. Where uh, you're very nervous. I mean, it, it hasn't happened to me in a long time. It does still happen to me, though. Like, sometimes I will meet a woman. Who I instantly am like, oh, her. Oh, it's her. Never met her before. Oh, it's her. And I'm reminded because like I'll have all these experiences. Where, like I talk to, I'll talk to like pretty women or just women of any kind. Pretty women, women of any kind. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to them and I feel no anxiety. I'm just cool. And I'm just like, hey, yeah, joking around. Like I don't care. I might find them attractive or cool, but it's like I don't care. And so I, I don't feel nervous or weird. But then every once in a while, like I'll think I'm past it. I'll think like I'm old. I'm old and I, I don't I don't I don't have schoolboy crushes anymore. I'm old and I don't have schoolboy crushes. I'll think that, and then all of a sudden I'm like extremely nervous talking to this girl. All of a sudden, like I, I really can't think. And uh that's what I'm talking about before, where it's the same thing with like heartbreak, where it's like, oh, I remember heartbreak. I remember being heartbroken. I'm never going to feel that way again. And then you see that the girl that you blew off months ago is just trying to date. <laughs> you know, not, It's not like she's getting married. It's like you, she's just like testing the waters of dating and found a guy that she can tolerate. And uh, you're just like, oh, oh, oh.
you know, you're, you're just upset. Same thing with getting a crush and getting nerves. Oh, I, I remember when I was nervous around girls. <laughs> and the next thing you know, it's like you, you meet one and you, you get that feeling all over again and you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm very nervous. I'm rehearsing what I'm going to say ahead of time. When I actually talk, I'm nervous. And what's funny is if you notice that she's nervous too. I love that. When I know that she's nervous and she knows that I'm nervous. And we probably both know that each other knows that we're nervous. Or something. I don't know. I stopped making sense. But that's the funnest of all, because it's very easy not to notice that. Like, when I was young, I didn't really notice that as much. Like, I was so caught up in my own head that I wouldn't even have been able to tell if she was nervous or not. I wouldn't I wouldn't have even thought about it. I felt like I was fighting such an uphill battle. Like, that's how dating feels when you're young. You're like, this is such an uphill battle. I feel like I have so, so much stacked against me that... I'm not even thinking about what's going on in her head. I'm not even thinking about how shaky her voice is or how awkward she's being. That is one thing, though, that gets a little clearer in time is you're like, oh, I can tell she's nervous. And that means she cares. That means this is important to her. It goes back to what I'm saying where, you know, when you think something is important, it's because you're in a state of anxiety. When you um, care, there's, there's a level of anxiety to it. And so what that means, like when, you, when you're on a date, a first date, or just meeting somebody and you're nervous, she's nervous, it means you both care about this. It means you both care about this. That's what you, and that's what you say to her. That's what I tell young people. When I meet them and they're, they'll listen to me, I say, let her know. Say something like, uh, I can tell that we both care about this. I know that because we're both nervous. If we didn't care, we wouldn't be nervous. If we didn't care, we wouldn't have anxiety. So let's just cut to the chase and get married. Just cut to the chase and get married. No, um... But that would be funny, like, because that's the funny thing about that is it's it's unspoken. When you're talking to a woman and she's nervous and you're nervous, this is important to both of you. You both care about how this goes or the outcome of it. No matter how obvious it is, it's like, it's like the thing you can't acknowledge. Like sometimes somebody does say, "I'm nervous." Like I've been on dates before where a girl's like, "I'm nervous." <laughs> that sounds terrible. I'm nervous about you. I'm, ner <laughs> I'm nervous about what you're capable of and what you're going to do. You make me nervous. No, but when they admit they're nervous, like, oh, my God. And that is the side of it that people don't, you know, just going on a dating monologue here. <laughs> just doing another dating. <laughs> just doing, <laughs> doing another dating monologue. But uh, <laughs> when... Uh, when you have like female friends too, that's something that people don't really have insight into when they're young. 
like a teenage boy in most cases doesn't have much insight into what a woman goes through before a date, what's going through her head. You know, some women are like, they'll go on a date and they'll be like, I don't, I don't really care about this guy. I'm just kind of doing it to see what happens or I'm just giving it a chance. But like, if you've ever had a female friend who's going on a date or just started dating somebody and they really like them, they're in, an, in a hyper anxious state. They're worried about all these insane things I'm talking about here. But when you're a teenage boy or a, just a boy in your 20s, just a boy in your 20s, like in your mind, like this girl has all the answers. She's uh, standing at the top of the hill and you're trying to climb the hill to get to her. All she has to do is, is like put her foot on your head and you're never going to get up there. Like she, all she has to do is put the minimal amount of effort in and you'll be just destroyed. When the reality is, many women feel the same way you do. And I mean, this this sounds obvious maybe, but it's true. And it's just something you can't see when you're young. You can't sense it. Like you're so stuck in your own head. Like I was saying a second ago, I, I was so stuck in my head. that like, I didn't even stop to acknowledge. I didn't even stop to like read the signs and be like, what's her body language like? What kind of stuff is she saying? But um, it's kind of, you know, and, and what I'm talking about, like through text where like the overcorrection or overcompensation to make up for your awkwardness just makes things worse and transmits that anxiety. Like it sends a, a desperate, terrible smell out into the air. You know, it, it's, it emits something psychically. You know, that happens in person too. Like if you're on a date, and thing, and you're awkward and nervous. Like when you try too hard to overcompensate or overcorrect that, that just makes it worse. You know, people understand nerves. Like people understand awkwardness. They make a big deal about it. Oh, awkward, awkward. You know that stupid shit people say. And when someone's nervous, they. When someone's nervous, like the reason why people sometimes mock that or um, feel really uncomfortable is because they do relate to it. Like there was this old video that used to make its rounds like pre-YouTube, I think. And it was this kid who uh, he did like sports commentary for his college and uh, college news station. And he was he was just doing highlights from a basketball game, and you could tell he just completely lost his flow if he ever had it. Like he didn't seem like somebody who had it to begin with, but he just completely lost track, and he was just barely talking and just occasionally saying something. And I, I wish I could remember what he says, but you're watching and you're like, "Fuck, this is rough," because you've been in that exact situation. Maybe not narrating basketball highlight reels for your college news station. But you've been in that situation where you just lose your words and you can't get them back. Like there's no getting back on board. And you're in a position where you kind of have to try or you feel like you have to try. And it just makes it that much worse. But the reason like you watch that video and you're like, fuck, this is embarrassing. This is funny. 
is because you you watch it and you're just you know exactly what that feeling is you know exactly what that is and you you would be mortified if it was immortalized like that guy is they're the things that you just you want nobody to ever remember they're the things that you th- that traumatize you really it's a form of light trauma what we call light trauma l i t e trauma Trauma light. Trauma light. Yeah, we call that trauma light here. We call that trauma light. But it is. I mean, that, that shit is traumatic. Like, that, that's something that, that can and does happen to you when you're just doing a book report in front of your class when you're a kid. I think I told the, I don't know if I mentioned it on here, but when I was in elementary school, we, for some class, maybe fifth grade, we did these presentations. And for some reason, they videotaped them. We did them for the whole class, but the teacher videotaped each one, and then we re-watched them on videotape, which didn't really make sense since we had already done them live for everybody. But I think it was just the novelty of it. Like, hey, we're going to tape you, and then we're going to watch you all do it. But I had this friend, it was my redneck friend that I talk about sometimes on here, and he was very sensitive, extremely anxious, and worried all the time. He was this tough blue-collar kid. He hunted. He knew all about car engines. You know, he was a tough redneck kid, but he was very emotional, and he was in this state of, I would say he had an anxiety disorder. It wasn't just that he was anxious. He was, it was out of control, and he was delusional. It would cause him to have delusions. Uh, for example, you know, we did this, uh, these presentations that were videoed and we rewatched them and we, it was about to show him. And then he just, he freaked out next to me. He was like, we can't watch this. You know, we can't, everyone's going to see how much I, I move around. Everyone's going to see how much I move. And what he meant is he like shifts his weight from one foot to the other. He kind of bounces back and forth, and at that at that time we were rewinding it, or fast or fast. I don't remember what it was. Either rewinding it or fast forwarding it, and it was showing him getting rewound. And in the video, because it was being rewound, like it looked like he was dancing, because it was fast. Like he probably shifts the weight from like one foot to the next, you know, every few seconds or you know every once in a while. But when we were watching it being rewound, it looked like he was doing it just constantly. And so it looked like he was just like bouncing back and forth. <laughs> I can see it in my head. And he was freaking out next to me. Like he thought this was going to humili- humiliate him. He's like Everyone's going to see how much I move. And what's weird is, and I remember saying like, nobody's even going to notice I know it's hard to watch yourself on video or hear yourself talk, but nobody's going to notice that you're shifting from one foot to the next. It's something everybody does. If you're standing in front of a group of people, you shift from one foot to the next. Everybody does it. A lot of people do it. But in his mind, that was the most important thing in the world right then. He was really upset about it. And he thought that the, he essentially thought this was going to kill him or ruin his life. 
Because that's kind of what you, you you start thinking. Like when that seems really important, you're like, oh, if, if the entire class sees how much I move back and forth when I'm doing a presentation, it's going to ruin my life. I might as well die when they see that. But uh, what's weird is that came up again in the last few months where like I do the Mafia podcast on YouTube, which has video and uh, one of the guys on there will turn his camera off and, and just he's very uncomfortable with the camera. And one of the reasons he said is because he, he's like, I, what he said is he's like, man, it's so hard to, to sit still through all this. And I said, why do you have to sit still? And he goes, because people are going to see how much I move. People are going to see how much I move back and forth. And it was, I had deja vu. And I, and I, said, I was like, what? Apparently, this is something that many people think. And I said to him, I was like, have you seen me on these videos? Like, I look like a crackhead. You know, I'm reaching, I'm moving, I'm shifting, I'm vaping. I'm moving, I'm shifting, I'm vaping. I can't sit still at all. Nope. And I, and I said, like, one, like, who cares? Like the sort of person who's going to notice that and care doesn't matter and they're weird. And you don't need to be thinking about that hypothetical phantom because that's what that is. It's a phantom. Phantoms play a big role in this. And then, you know, on top of that, like who is even going to be noticing that? You're hyper-analyzing yourself. I didn't say all this. I, I said what I just said, but I didn't say this, which I was like, you're the only one hyper-analyzing yourself. This is hu hubristic. This is in the Terence McKenna sense. This is hubris. You think that's important. I, and I, I didn't go off on him because I, I understand. But still, like I was like, oh, this is, um, this is quite hubristic. This is quite hubristic. It is though, because it's like you think it, it's, there's something very, um, and I mean, I don't mean this in even a negative way, but there's something very self-absorbed about that. Like the kid in elementary school, my friend, these are people I like. I'm, I'm not saying this to criticize them, but, and I've thought this way too. So it's like, I'm not exempt from this. I certainly think this way about my own things. But there's this sort of narcissism to it, this self-absorption where you're thinking people are hyper-analyzing me so much that they're going to notice when I shift weight between one foot and the other on video. People are paying so close attention to me that if I don't just sit still, they're going to be upset. And then the other side of that is, and that will affect me. If those people see that, if those people hyperanalyze me, and, and say something mean, that's going to upset me. That's, that's kind of in, in all this. And it, it is very self-absorbed. I mean, that's kind of the thing that's weird about nervousness and anxiety is like, it doesn't seem like it should be self-absorbed because it, it's, it's kind of self, not self-hating, but it's definitely, um, it shows an insecurity or a, a lack of confidence which you wouldn't associate with narcissism. But a lot of low confidence and issues like that are very self-centered. It's just that they don't bother you as much because like a, a narcissist who worships himself 
who has too much confidence, like that ends up impacting you. Like they abuse you. But when it's someone who has no confidence, it's still the same level of self-absorption. It's just that it's it's this self-critical version. And whereas like one side of that coin is like everything that I'm thinking about is the most important thing in the world and you should too because it's the best. The other side is, you know, everything I'm thinking about is the most important thing in the world and you should feel the same way too because it's the worst thing in the world. Those are the two sides of narcissism and the, the hubris of anxiety. But, uh, I don't know. It's, it was weird, though, like recently to have somebody have the same exact concern as my redneck friend about being on video. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, but I mean, look what I was just saying a minute ago about work. Oh, I think that my future boss is watching me on the security. I mean, this sounds paranoid. Uh, it is, but it sounds so paranoid that I sound mentally ill that I was worried that my future boss was watching me on the security cam and closely monitoring how hard I was working at the end of the day. And he clocked me out because he, his judgment was that I wasn't working hard enough. All because he, it turned out he accidentally clocked me out because he confused me with another Eric. That's extremely delusional. And so, like, I'm not making fun of anybody for being like, everybody's watching me move. Everyone's getting mad at me for not holding still when I give a speech or do a podcast. Like, that's, like, what I said is way dumber than that. I'm being watched, and it's way more self-absorbed. Like, I'm so important that a guy who has a million things to do running an entire company is just watching me on the security cam, watching my every move. Like, what a level of narcissism that is. This guy who has so much to do. Like, now that I know this guy, it's funny to me to think about that. This guy, has he's driving up and down the freeway, driving up and down the state. He's getting phone calls every two seconds. On top of the things he has to do. Like, on top of the... he's he, When he doesn't have, you know, administrative things to do, he's doing physical labor for the company. He's a guy who does everything. So to imagine him just sitting there, like I imagined this guy who I hadn't met yet, like sitting in a dark room, sitting in a dark office, just watching the security camera footage. Like, how's this guy doing? What's the, what's he doing? So to, to take what I know now about that guy and imagine him doing that is so fucking stupid. And you have to like you know you have to imagine I mean like that guy the my future boss he was a like a phantom in my mind at that point I hadn't met him so I created this phantom and these friends spanning 30 years you know 28 years ago something like that this friend of mine was worried that people are going to watch him on a video moving too much they're going to hate him they're going to mock him until he dies make fun of him until he's dead because he, he shifted his weight too much on a video. Uh, like, he created, like that kid, my friend, 
created a phantom in that classroom. Like he was imagining there were phantoms in that room who were just waiting to, to pounce on him. Same with my friend with the podcast. It's like he's imagining these anonymous phantoms out in, on the internet somewhere watching this, thinking that. But we form these delusions, we form these stories, and then we share them with other people. And the more we share them, the more convinced we become of them. Oh, hey, I think she did this because of this. And the next time, she did this because of this. She did do this because of this. And you become convinced of it. And then that's some of the stories that you're getting from other people. Like when someone you know comes to you with a story about their life, some sort of drama, some sort of hang-up, some sort of problem with another person, how much of what you're getting is just a delusion? I mean, I've heard some crazy things from people over the years. I've heard some crazy things from really smart people that I love and respect over the years. I've said some crazy things to people who love and respect me. It doesn't make it any less delusional that we all do it. I mean, it actually makes it more delusional that we're all so delusional. <laughs> like our, our, our collective delusion is just so massive because we all have our own little ones and we create new ones every day. And those are our stories. You know, so often like that's, that's the why that we're looking for. That's the, the story that explains things. And now that I'm, you know, a boss of people again, like an actual boss where that's what I do most of the day, you know, from what I understand, like the people who work under me like and respect me from what I understand. And uh, that said, like, who knows what they're worried about from me? I realize sometimes like I'll say things deadpan like we allow uh, employees, we give employees a huge discount on furniture they buy. And this woman who works for me, 30 years old, she had bought some stuff, but she didn't get a copy of her order. And tonight after work, she was standing with a group of coworkers and asked if she could get a copy of that. And I said, oh yeah, we don't give copies of orders to employees. They just have to wait. And she thought I was 100% serious. She was like, oh. And I was like, no, I'm kidding. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll get you it right away. I'll get you it tomorrow, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you a copy tomorrow. But I just walked up and I, I just said that deadpan. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, we don't give. I said it just like it was a policy or something. And it seemed absurd enough. Like, we don't give. If an employee orders stuff, we don't give them a copy of the order like we do other customers. You know, it makes no sense. It's all it is is a sheet of paper saying like what you bought and when you're going to get it. But it's happened a number of times where even before I was the boss, like where I just said something deadpan. And to me, it was obviously a joke, but I could tell people were like, oh. And I was like, no, no, don't don't worry about that. I was just <laughs> just kidding. But who knows how many things like that have happened where they, like someone's like, oh, God, my boss said this today. Or little things. Like today, like we hired a new girl, and she's been doing a great job. And I turned a corner, and I saw that she was just kind of sitting there texting. 
and she saw that I saw, but I don't give a shit. You know, some people are really hard on that. Like the woman who's been working as my floor manager is like really very hard on any texting she sees. My take is just like, don't let it be a problem. Like if every time I see you, every time I come around the corner, you're doing that and you're not getting your job done. But like if you're sitting there working hard and like every once in a while you send a text or look at your phone, I have no problem with that. I have zero problem with that. I think you probably need to do that. I would be doing that. But it was funny because like she saw that I saw and then and then I kind of like walked a little ways ahead and then I had to turn around. I was I was doing shoplifter duty. There were a couple of really there were these guys that came in with an empty duffel bag. And that's something I've learned with the shoplifting stuff is, you know, we, we make people give us their bags now. But uh, if someone comes in with an empty bag and they look, you know, like a, you know, they look like the type. It's pretty obvious what their intention is. And so I was just following these two guys around the store who are obviously going to steal. And I happened to come around the corner and see this hardworking employee, new employee, and she just happened to be texting. And then when I turned around, like she had put her phone away and I could tell that she was self-conscious of it. I could tell that she was like, fuck, my boss just saw me texting when I should be working. I was worried about the most important thing in the world to me right then were these two shoplifters. And that's a funny thing because like when those people are in the store, that becomes the most important thing to me unless I have something more important. Unless something's really big, I'm probably going to be just thinking about, let's stop these guys from stealing too much. Let's stop these guys from stealing as much as they can. I mean, one of them still got away with a pair of sunglasses. He put on a pair of sunglasses we sell and walked out. But I was like, if all we lost from the two guys with the empty duffel bag is a pair of sunglasses, I, I'm fine. That's a success. If you can stop someone like that. But anyway, just point being though, like getting rid of the shoplifters, watching the shoplifters, that was the most important thing to me in that moment. So when I saw this girl texting, I was just kind of relieved she was there. I'm just like, oh, I'm glad that we have an employee in that corner of the store in case those guys go there. And she probably doesn't care. Like she probably didn't go home tonight and be like, fuck, he saw me texting. But I could tell from the way she put her phone away and stuff that like, she was like, fuck. But it, I noticed it. But other than that, like I, I truly don't care. I'm not going to be hard about that unless it becomes a problem. But uh, I guess I just know how I would react in that situation. And I would, I'd be worried for a little bit. I'd be worried that I was going to get talked to. I'd be worried that it, it would be, I don't know. I was just worried that it would be an issue. And some people are like that. Like some bosses are like that. Like the floor manager, she's more like that. Like if she sees, if she were to turn the corner and see somebody texting, like I'm her boss and I want, you know, I've wanted her to kind of lighten up on people a little bit. I love her, but, and, and she's going to be leaving, but like, I've wanted her to lighten up a bit on people because like if she came around the corner and saw that, she might be like, stop texting. You can't text. But anyway, I know that I would have just for the next half hour, probably I would have been like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, oh. Ha <laughs> ha!
<laughs> For the next half hour, I would have been going. <laughs> Stupid. Um, but uh, I, I would have been upset for a minute. And uh, I need to do I need to do more of that. It's therapeutic, not the not the cackle. Not scr- not even yelling, just gross it's getting sick getting sick um where to go after that nowhere i need to go to bed is where i need to go um anyway uh anyway uh i guess just yeah the the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you you know it's true but then your anxiety creates all these other versions, all these other scenarios that aren't the worst thing that ever happened to you, but you're imagining the worst thing. You know that the worst thing is possible. And the thing is, though, I, I guess where that, that saying is especially true, the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you, where it's especially true is like when you know better, when you know that this isn't that bad, but you still can't stop that feeling because that's kind of what the anxiety is as well. Like I know that when I'm in a state of anxiety at this point in my life, like when I was younger, less so, but at this point in my life, when I'm going through an extreme bout of anxiety, I know better. And in the moment I know better, I know that this feeling isn't definitive. I know that this is temporary. I know that the thing that is making me feel this way is temporary and doesn't even matter but i still can't stop that i still can't stop experiencing that and so that's the funny part is like even if you know that it could be far worse or even if you know that this isn't all important you can't really uh stop the electricity once it starts you know i've talked on here before about anxiety is it's like electricity running through your arms and it's like this current just going up and down and you can't really stop it once it starts like yeah there are techniques there's little things you can do there's drugs you can take i mean i've taken xanax a number of times that's i like that one i actually like it what i like to do because i had a friend who would give me a xanax like just once in a while Never enough. Like one time they gave me uh, uh, like a bunch at once, like 10 or something, like nine. And I, I think, I don't know if I took them every day, but definitely multiple days in a row. And I didn't like it when I ran out. But other than that, I think I only ever have had like one here or there. And uh, what I like to do on them, it's been a long time since I had one. But what I like to do after having, they weren't even Xanax, they were like Klonopin or something. But uh, after I have one of those, I just like to eat. And I don't know if that's like the lowering of your inhibitions or something. Because I know when I'm very anxious, I don't like to eat. So when you're feeling the opposite, you know, it's different than like being stoned. Because like when you're stoned, you just, um, 
I don't know. I mean, everybody knows what it is to be stoned and to eat. But when you take a Xanax or any of those kind of drugs, an anti-anxiety drug, it's almost like it, it, it cuts off your filter. Because I know that every time that I take one, I binge eat. I mean, I'll do that anyway. But every time I've taken a Xanax, I binge eat in a really short amount of time. I, I will just stuff myself in like 10 minutes. And I wonder if that's uh, normal. I wonder if that's, it's almost like your inhibitions are lowered, your, your ability to, it's kind of like how when you're not anxious, you'll talk more freely. I wonder if, if part of that is like, you know, that part of you that says like, I shouldn't be eating this much. I'm full. I shouldn't be gorging myself. That part of you shuts off because that itself is anxiety. Like the part of you that says I'm full, I don't want to get fat. I don't want to feel like shit. I don't want this. I don't want that. You know, I don't want that. The part of you that says I don't want that. So you stop eating even though you're bored and it tastes good. That's kind of anxiety too. Oh, I better stop this. And it's anxiety that's telling you that. It's like it's some kind of like low frequency anxiety that's kind of like, yeah, I better stop eating. But when you're on Xanax, it's like the filter is gone where you're just like, there's no reason to stop eating. I don't even know what it is to stop doing this. And what that reminds me of is my old neighbor, Terry Twenty, who's now deceased, the old gay man. His nephew would come to his barbecues and I'd be there. And his nephew had Down syndrome and they called him John John. And I, I remember I brought my friend to one of those barbecues when he was in town. And I was like, yeah, that's his nephew, John John. That's his nephew, or his nephew's going to be there. He's, he has Down syndrome and his name is John John. And my friend was like, like, oh, yeah, no, I mean, like, you didn't need to tell me he had Down syndrome if they call him John John. But anyway, John John couldn't, he could not stop eating. Like, he would go to these barbecues and his mom, he was an adult man. You know, he, was, he had Down syndrome, but he was an adult man. And his mom, who was an older lady, had to carefully prepare a plate for him with just a very limited amount of food and then keep him away from the food because he 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 would if he had access to all the food he wants every single time he eats he makes himself sick i don't know if that's a kind of like what i'm saying about xanax i don't know if that's a normal thing with down syndrome where they can't stop eating i haven't personally known very many people with down syndrome none really maybe like a couple of kids in school that i didn't really know but John John, at least, he cannot stop eating. And that seems to be a byproduct of his Down syndrome. Because it's not just like, oh, John John's a pig. <laughs> it's not just that, it's not like, oh, John John's a fat fucking pig, dude. Dude, dude John John's coming to the barbecue, hide the food, because dude's a fucking pig. He'll eat fucking everything. You know, it's not like that. It was more just like, no, no, this is like a condition. This is This is something... This, this is like something with him. He's not just a pig. John John is just, he's not just a pig. He's got like a, what do you call it? Like a, a condition. Can't stop eating. But that's how it was. Because he would actually, every time he eats, he would make himself sick if he's not limited. 
And I mean, I don't know, do people with Down syndrome get anxiety? Like maybe, uh, maybe having Down syndrome is just being on, a, like being on a lot of Xanax at once and being awake. That's probably how you'd look. If you took like 10 Xanax and didn't have a tolerance, but you were, because the, the thing is you just crash. Like every time I've taken Xanax, I, it's pretty much the same thing. I'm always like, oh, I'm going to use this because I've written, I've done some writing on Xanax before and I really like that because anxiety gets in your way. It's why, it's why like all the old writers like to drink and smoke while they write. But if you take Xanax, it's like all of your inhibitions and anxieties are gone so you can just write. So there were times where I had Xanax and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to write tonight. This is a treat. Like I said, like I, I barely ever had access to it. I only got got it here or there. Like I've never just had a supply of Xanax or anything close. Uh, aside from the one time I was given a handful, but I, I had these plans where I was like, "Oh, this I'm gonna I'm gonna use this." That's how I am with drugs. I don't. I very rarely I'm like, "Oh, let me just take a drug." Oh, I just want to be high. It's always like, "What what am I gonna use this for?" And so I was like, I'm going to write tonight. I'm going to make sure that I'm caffeinated and I'm going to write. But without fail, every single time I've taken it, I just end up binge eating to the point where I'm just disgusted with myself. I'm bloated. I, you could just throw me in the river and I just float like a buoy. And uh, a bloated buoy. A bloated buoy. And uh, is, that, is that a dead body or a bloated buoy? But every single time I've just, I eat to the point where I'm just disgusting and then I fall asleep sitting up. I can think of a few times where that didn't happen. Just eat to the point of being sick and then fall asleep. Like, and you're just out like a light too. That's the crazy thing about that drug. You're just out like a light. You don't even go through that whole process where you're like dozing off. Like, cause I'm the kind of person who stupidly tries to keep himself awake when I'm dozing off and I just keep falling asleep. But uh, with Xanax, there's there's not even that. There's no lead up. You just are out. It's like a light switch just goes out and now you're just gone. You go from being like, oh, I'm going to read about this. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, more food to just out like a light. Uh, but if you could keep yourself awake, like if you could not pass out like that on Xanax, you'd probably, it'd, it'd probably just be a, uh, like if you could, if you could take ten and stay awake, you just eat as much as John John. You'd be you have Down syndrome. That's what I'm, that was my whole point. You'd basically just have Down syndrome. Like your mouth would probably gape open. But uh, what got me going on that is just the idea that like there are things you can do to stop anxiety. And Xanax is weird because you take one, and like I've taken it. That's the thing with me. This is how backwards I am. And this is why I am, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to call myself anything. But uh, this is me, though, where it's like someone will give me a Xanax because I'm having a panic. Not a panic attack, but I'm panicking or anxious. Like someone will give me one or they'll give me one and be like, save this for when you're having some sort of panic episode. And I'll be like, okay. And then... I end up thinking, I don't want to take that when I'm panicking. I want to take it for fun on another night. And so when I have an actual panic attack, I don't take it. And then I just take it for fun. I mean, that's me in a nutshell.
why use this drug that's designed for this when this is happening when I could just take it randomly and do what I want? That's kind of my philosophy on drugs. But I, I don't know, man. Uh, I don't even remember my point. It's just like some sort of drug talk now. Uh, this turned into some kind of drug talk. Oh, uh, he was talking about some interesting things, and then it, tr it turned into this drug talk. I, I guess just talking about like how you can just take a Xanax, and then all of a sudden it's just gone. When I that was my point. It's like when I have taken Xanax, when I'm having anxiety, it's interesting how you just wait like 20 minutes. First of all, like the placebo effect happens right away. You take the Xanax and immediately you feel better before it's even kicked in. But then once it actually kicks in, you're like, wow, all the electricity in my arms is gone. That vibrating hum that's going on throughout my entire body and mind is suddenly just gone. I've enjoyed meditating during an anxiety state. Even if you can't get into it, the act of doing it itself is good. I have gotten rid of anxiety through meditation. Exercising sometimes works. When I used to run, sometimes going on a really rigorous run, of course, helps. Working out helps. I've definitely been anxious, and then I've just lifted weights, and I feel immediately better afterward. There are things you can do, but usually, if, it's, if, if you've really ruminated enough, nothing works. I've been in such an anxious state before while lifting weights that it takes me like six hours to do, to, to do something that normally takes two. Because I keep forgetting to lift the weight. Like I just, I'm pacing because I'm a pacer. And so I'll, I'll just pace back and forth listening to music and thinking. And I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be lifting weights. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to eat. You know, all of that happens to me. So even some of those things that work don't always work. But uh, it's, and that's always when you have something on your mind, you're like, oh, it's the most important thing. Oh, this is the most important thing. You know, um, it, it's always when you have something like that going on in your mind. I'm, I'm winding down. I'm losing my train of thought, so I'm going to go. But yeah, it, it does tend to be when you, when you think something is so important, it causes you to not be able to do anything else. That's the unfortunate thing. I'm so worried about this one thing. I'm so worried about this. I'm so worried about this. That I'm not, not even going to be able to do anything else. I'm not even going to be able to lift weights. I'm not even going to be able to read anything. I can't talk to anybody. So that's the funny part about it. All of these things that you could be doing that are so much more productive and so much more important. Don't just feel less important. You just can't even do them or think about them. But whatever someone's feeling, that, that seems to be the most important thing in the world. Been dealing with a situation at work where there's a, a guy, I think I mentioned it, but the floor manager's Filipino. She's a 48 year old Filipino woman. And we have a guy who works for us in his 20s who's Filipino. And, like, they didn't know each other beforehand, but they, like, she got to know his family. There's a Filipino. There's a cultural connection. And she apparently, like, called his parents. Like, his, his parents have been calling her 
and she calls them to like discuss his work and he's a good he's been a good worker but like she has these discussions with his parents about like him at work and he you know wanted to change his schedule to something that we didn't really want but i decided to let him do it because he's been good so far just give him a little something and she didn't want him to do it so she called his parents and i can understand being an adult man and being upset that somebody like your boss called your parents i totally get that even though there's this they've become family friends and they're close and like the parents want to know and there is a kind of a cultural angle to it i totally understand his his point of view of like geez like i go to work every day and my boss fucking calls my parents <laughs> when, <laughs> when uh, just because I wanted to work different days. There is a boundary being crossed there for sure, to say the least. But uh, like he's really upset about it to the point where like on his today was his off day and he was texting me about it. And I'm just like, man, ultimately, this is so unimportant. Like, this shouldn't be that big of a deal. Like, I understand why it, to him, I, I completely understand why it's a big deal to him right now. But to me, I'm just like, oh, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to move on. You know, when this was first brought up to me a week ago, it was a big deal, a bigger deal. But now that it's been a week, it's, it's kind of like I was talking about, like complaining about heartbreak or a breakup to your friends and then... At first, they're like, oh, yeah, I get it. Breakups are hard. I'm here to listen to you talk about the same thing over and over again for the next five hours. And then after a week, your friends are like, man, I'm sick of this. I don't care about this anymore. It's the same thing with these situations where like when something's brought to my attention at work, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is important to you. Let's get this figured out. But then when it, when it keeps coming up and, you know, it's kind of we're moving on, I'm just like, oh, Oh, this? Oh, you, you still care about that? And managing people, that's a lot of what you do. A lot of what you do is, oh, to every individual person here who wakes up in their bed, gets dressed and drives to work, whatever they're feeling here or feeling about their life seems like the most important thing. That minor disagreement they had with somebody that uh, tension they're having with a coworker, whatever it is, that problem they had with a coworker yesterday, suddenly that to them, that's just, it's everything. And I think what I was about to get into a while back was now it's my job to care about that. As the manager, now it's my job to care about that. Someone comes to you and says, hey boss, listen to this. This is, is bothering me. And I, as their boss, I have to be like, oh, I can see that this matters to this person. Now I have to care about it to some degree. I have to worry about it. I have to figure out a solution. And uh, I can do that. Like I, I'm, I like doing that, actually. But uh, it's difficult, though, because all of a sudden, you now have, I don't even know how many people work for me. I don't know, like a dozen? I don't, I don't know. But that's a dozen people who all live individual lives and feel very strongly about whatever it is they're feeling right now. They feel strongly about what they're feeling. And that affects me. I have to deal with it. 
it's the same thing for a group of friends. You, even though friendship is more voluntary, like you chose to spend time with these people, you see where this bounces through a group of friends. Like this person's upset about this, so now like this person is, and like it feeds off each other. And if you care about somebody, their worries are your worries. Up to a point. And with something like a breakup where it's like, oh, you know, your sadness is my sadness. I'm here for you. Your sadness is my sadness. I'm here for you. Uh, you know, even though you go through that, like you reach a point where it's no longer your sadness anymore. You're no longer feeling it and you're thinking this person's wallowing in it. But then that turns a corner where like now you just have to worry about them. Like if you've had a friend go through a bad breakup, your first thought is like, oh yeah, like let's talk, let's talk about the relationship. Let's talk about the relationship and like how you're thinking about it. And, uh, and if the person can't get over it, then you start going like, is he going to kill himself? Is he going to be okay? Um, I think back to a friend of mine who's my age, so he would have been 35, this is a couple years ago, he broke up with his girlfriend, and he's the one who broke up with her, she was quite a bit younger, like 10 years younger maybe, maybe more, and he broke up with her, and then he was uh, getting on Instagram, and he would post stories, and then he would... As I've mentioned before, the thing, why stories became popular is not because people are so zen that they're like, I'm just going to throw an image out into the world and it'll be there for just a, a few hours or 24 hours and then it's gone. There's no permanence to it. That's not why people like Instagram stories. They like posting Instagram stories in part, in large part, because they can see who sees it. It tells you who saw it. With a regular Instagram post, all you get is, oh, who liked this? Who liked my post? Who commented? Who liked and, who liked this and commented? With a post, that's what you get. But with a story, you, you see who saw it. It's like purely voyeuristic. And who do you care about? Who's the most important person to you at any given time? If you're posting a lot of stories, it's a member of the opposite sex. Chances are, like, I always think this when I see Instagram stories. Obviously not all of them. Obviously not all of them. But I wonder how many people out there, when they're posting a story, are like, I hope she sees this. And then I hope that I get to see that she saw this, because I'm going to check. After I post this, I'm going to check and see who saw it. And I want to know if she saw it. And if she didn't, I'm going to be sad. If she didn't see this, ah, shouldn't have too loud. If she didn't see this, ah, ah, I put. I'm gonna post this so she sees this, and if she doesn't see it, ah, um, it's getting psychotic. Baddie's looking at me. Um. That's, I think that's in a lot of people's minds. But anyway, going back to my friend, like he broke up with his girlfriend and then he was posting these Instagram stories and then he was, he was immediately checking to see who saw it. Like he wasn't even waiting to see who saw it like an hour later. He was checking it like within a minute, within five minutes. 
and he told me, he said, uh, I'm posting these stories. And then I noticed that she's seen them within seconds after I post them. And I said, the only reason you know that she's seen them is because you were checking and you're probably checking to see if she saw it. The only reason you're checking your story seconds after you post it is to see if she saw it. You know, that, so you're even doing it for that reason. And sure enough, she's probably sitting there waiting. She's probably sitting there, no doubt, glued to her phone, waiting for you to post a new story so she can see it. And she's doing the same thing. She's probably posting stories. Because around that time, he told me too, he's like, oh, on her story, she put photos up of this like special place that we went to together like a park, like she went to our special place and took photos and put that up as her story. And I was like, yeah, she did it for you. She did it so you would see it. You're both doing it. You're playing a game of ping pong. And, uh, you know, and I, I didn't, I wasn't condescending about it. I was just like, you're both doing that. Like the reason you're posting those is so she'll see it. The reason you're checking it is to see if you see when and if she saw it, she's doing the same thing. When she posted pictures of the park, she posted pictures of the park. She was thinking like, I hope he sees this. And she was probably checking it all the time up to that point just to see if he saw it. So it's just, it's this, um, it's this little game that people play. And, uh, it's anxious. I mean, there's, it's no wonder that they say that like in the age of social media or that anxiety is through the roof. And that seems like the most important thing at the time. Like my friend telling me that an adult man, a mature, smart adult man, adult man, a smart adult man. When, you know, when someone like him is thinking that I can just sit back and laugh and be like, Oh man, it's so silly what you get hung up on. I, I think I, I talked about this sort of thing before. I've told that story before, but such a good story. But um, I mentioned before, too, like there was a girl we dated in like 2011 for three months. And she broke up with me. And then at some point I posted a new drawing a short time later. And I remember she liked it. She had broken up with me. It was probably the first time she had liked something. First time she had liked something since the breakup. And of course, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you who else liked it, but I know that she liked it. And I'm such a sick, sad person. In other words, I'm totally normal that the next day, I remember I looked at it again just to, to, to make sure to be like, did she like that? And she had removed the like, what they call removing the like. You heard of that? You heard of this thing they, they're doing? The, they're doing this thing where they remove the like. She removed the like. And my brain just went into overdrive. I was already in a bad place. But my brain went into overdrive. Why'd she remove it? This. I even mentioned, I even talked about it with somebody. I was like, what does it mean? What does it mean that she liked my post? She liked my drawing. And it was a drawing of Posh Spice. She liked my posh spice drawing, and then she unliked it. What does it mean? 
this? Does it mean this? And I talked to a friend about it. I was like, hey, I got to talk to you about this. This happened. She did this. And uh, I'm sure I sounded insane. Like monitoring my freaking likes. Something I don't even do normally. But it goes back to the Instagram stories thing. You're not checking because you care what, who on your friend list saw your Instagram story. You're checking to see if she saw it. And she's checking to see if he saw it. Same thing with the likes. Same thing with the likes. I remember that back in like when, when everybody was using Facebook heavily. When my, when my generation was using Facebook heavily. You know, that was like, that was what you know, that's what you looked for. You know, if you met a girl and like she added you on Facebook, you were waiting for the, oh, she liked it. Oh, she's liked a few of my posts lately. She's liked a few of my posts. And then you break up, she removed the like. She's removing the like. Sounds like somebody with an accent saying, removing the lake. Removing the lake. She's removing the lake. That's what we call removing the lake. Removing the lake. Uh, But you notice that shit, and like me noticing that is every bit as pathetic as my friend noticing these Instagram story things, but that's what you notice. That's the important thing right now. What's the most important thing right now? Is she liking my posts? What's the most important thing right now? Is my ex-girlfriend checking my Instagram stories very soon after I post them? And is she posting things to do the same thing with me? Seems very big, seems very important. Seems all important. And what's funny about it is you try to figure it out. It's like this. But why this? What is this? Why why is this? How how is this? You go to these deep philosophical depths. Why is she doing that? How? How'd she do that? I don't even know how she does this. I don't even know. Do you even know how she did this? Did you hear about her doing this? I don't even know. But it's, but I do know she did this. I don't know how, well, why, but I can tell you, she did this. You know, your brain goes into that mode. It's like searching for meaning. It is. You know, it's actually searching for this meaning and everything. But anyway, the most important thing, it's this. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun 
Those are hills and plains I see a land where children can 